This is Unfiltered, episode 311 for May 28th, 2020. While governments across the world try to contain COVID, the race for a vaccine is on. Pharmaceutical giant Johnson & Johnson announcing a lead vaccine candidate for COVID-19. It is just one of many vaccine candidates already in testing phases. The World Health Organization has said there are over 100 vaccine candidates and at least eight in human trials. Hello, friends, and welcome into 311, 311 of your unfiltered podcast, your Corona cracking cast. My name is Chris, and I just got through the biggest public gathering that I've been to since the beginning of the entire Corona lockdown. I was at a campground over the weekend from for the Memorial Day holiday, and uh, boy, people came out. It's usually considered the kickoff of the camping season anyways, for those in the camping community. It's generally considered Memorial Day, and Memorial Day weekend is the start. Even though school's not out yet, uh, things are all in the gray area this year. And the place I was at, I got there on Wednesday before Memorial Day. You know, because as a full-time RVer, you could do these things. You show up a little early. So I get there on Wednesday. It's me and another dude. And, of course, he parks right next to me. You know, whole campground. He parks right and he right up, pulls right up. He just pulls right up to old Jupes. And uh, he's a chatterbox, too. He likes to talk to Chris about all kinds of stuff. He's got questions about my rig and about what we're doing. You know, real chatterbox. It's great. Really great. Just wonderful. And anyways... By Friday evening to Saturday, there wasn't a space available. It's one of those situations where people were driving around looking for spots, scouting, and having to just bail. I mean, social distancing was practically impossible. It was packed full of people. It seemed people were just bursting at the seams to get out. Um, I, if I didn't already have the big Rona, I've probably got it now. So let's do our COVID news right here at the top where meat processing plants, even though they've supposedly taken steps, seem to still be a big source of concern for new COVID-19 outbreaks. The pace of COVID-19 deaths across the United States is slowing tonight, but the total is nearing a new threshold. 100,000. At the same time, the nation's reopening keeps moving ahead, led by a major American financial institution. Stephanie Sy begins our coverage. This is PBS News. An opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange that may go down in history. Governor Andrew Cuomo did the honors wearing a mask, the now telltale symbol of the pandemic. They're also giving ridiculous air high fives. With that, the trading floor partially reopened for the first time in two months. The normally buzzing space saw only a few brokers return in person, and most employees will continue to work remotely for now. Cuomo said the opening, after Memorial Day, marked a critical moment. We're going to turn the page on COVID-19, and we're going to start focusing on reopening and how we reopen and how smart we are in reopening. Actually, let's pause here at the reopening. This is something I'd like to talk to you guys more about. There really seems to still be this desire. In fact, I think the metaphor I heard best explained to me was there is a portion of those of us who remain willfully locked down, who feel like 
we've finally taken the car, in this case, the car being the economy. We've taken the car into the shop. We've taken it off the freeway, and we've even dropped the motor. We've got the motor pulled out of the car now. Like, we, we have it out on the side, and this is our chance to really clean it up, to fix things, replace things that need fixing, because how often do you drop the motor out of your car? And so this is a once-in-a-generational type of chance, an opportunity to have a new normal. As a society, beyond just this immediate situation, we should start looking forward to understand how this experience is going to change us or how it should change us, because this is going to be transformative. It is going to be transformative on a personal basis, on a social basis, on a systems basis. We're never going to be the same again. We're not going to forget what happened here. Okay. I, I want to pause here. Personal change, what you decide to do different, you have full jurisdiction you can make any kind of changes you want as a result of this. Societal level changes and, and economic changes, those there's already a process for. There's a voting process for that. There's a way to execute that kind of change. Um, of course, I'm very U.S.-centric in this view, but this is true for most countries. There are already means to affect those changes. Now, we haven't been necessarily very good at affecting those changes, especially recently, but there is a process. This, this isn't a, a few group of folks, like the three billionaires that, that Cuomo is working with. That isn't the way you affect change, is by having a few technocrats come in and tell you how to do things better. This is a democracy. It's a bottom-up type of change that gets affected here. And when you're talking about changing something as critical as the identity of the country, you have to go through the right process, or else you're going to lead to some kind of civil war. I read Peggy Noonan's column this past week, and she talked about how this pandemic, uh, though tragic, uh, has changed a lot of Americans. And that she said, we just may come out on the other side a more, a more plain, a plainer and a better people. Um, what are your thoughts as this book's released in the middle of this pandemic? As Keep in mind, she's selling a book. As so many Americans find themselves in that valley between two mountains. Yeah, the, or he. the book is about going through hard times and coming out better on the other side. And I think what you discover in the valley uh, is that you get broken open. You can either be broken by suffering and hard times are broken open. And the, those who are broken just get hard and, and, and they're unfeeling, frankly, like our president. Uh, and those who are broken open get softer. They see deeper into themselves. The great theologian Paul Tillich said in moments of suffering, uh, they interrupt your life and remind you you're not who you thought you were. They carve through the floor of the basement of your soul and reveal depths that you did not know who you have. So this deep thinker, in a moment of irony, talking about being softer, being more aware, being more open, still manages to work in a political jab. Boom, boom, right there. Boom, into Trump. Mm, very awake. But you see, this is the desire. Those that are still clinging on to some kind of new normal, because a lot of things are broken. And for those that are willing to just get back to life, 
There's something wrong. They're, they get shamed. They're, the people that have this opinion are angry about it. So are the people there just not worried about it, Cal? Are they not worried about their own personal safety? This is MSNBC at a Memorial Day crowd uh, trying to shame people. I haven't met anybody who is. I met some folks actually from Lake Geneva who lived in the area. They were staying a few miles outside of town where I were. And they said they're worried about it. They're worried about that second spike. They're worried about folks coming in from Chicago. But they'll quickly add at the same time, this is a place that relies on that business. Now, in the background is a guy walking around with his camera phone filming them. He's filming them. You might wonder, why would he care to film them? I think people here want a little bit more funding when it comes to these programs so that they could stay closed. But again, I think people felt like the Supreme Court made the decision here in Wisconsin that it was time to open up. But you can see here, just around. So then he tells the cameraman to point over to the guy who's filming them. He's walking around filming the crew. Nobody's wearing them. Nobody's, uh, there you go. He says... He says, nobody's wearing masks, and then the guy shouts back to him, including your cameraman. And then, like a dummy, listen, the news anchor just repeats it. But you can see, here, just around. Nobody's wearing them. Nobody's, uh, the there you go, including the cameraman. Yeah. <laughs> and then he hangs his head, realizing that they've just been called out, that their own crew behind camera isn't wearing masks. So picture this situation. MSNBC reporter is out in a public space, shaming people. Ironically, behind him at this very moment is someone wearing a mask shaming people for not wearing a mask when his very own crew is there not wearing a mask. This kind of double standard hypocrisy also reminds us of Chris Cuomo, doesn't it? <sighs> or uh, uh, Andrew and Chris, the, the, the two action brothers, you remember when Chris Cuomo was down in his basement with uh, coronavirus while also spotted outside and gotten a conf- confrontation with a biker and then faked his exit of the basement as if that was the first time he'd come out. That was CNN. Now here's MSNBC. Total hypocrisy. Their own crew isn't wearing masks. They put the mask on while they're in front of camera, and they go off camera and they take it off. And this guy calls them out, and this reporter just didn't think about it and repeats what he says. Just around. Nobody's wearing them. Nobody's... Uh, the there you go, including the cameraman. Yeah. Katie. <laughs> uh, he says half your crew's not wearing masks. Listen again. There you go, including the camera. Yeah. Katie. Striking images. Cal Perry. Striking. Very striking. Very striking. While we get more tests, so more people are testing positive, the deaths are still climbing in the States as well. And the WHO this week has warned that we might not just have a second wave, but there could be a second peak. But we need to be also cognizant of the fact that the disease can jump up at any time. Uh, we, we, we cannot make assumptions that just because the disease is on the way down now that it's, on a, it's, on, it's going to keep going down and then we're going to get a number of months to get ready for a second wave. We may get a second peak in this wave. This happened during pandemics in the past. It certainly happened in the pandemic uh, of 1919 and the Spanish flu. Uh, we, we got a second peak, not necessarily a second wave. Now, this is why at this phase, while economies are reopening, Accurate data is so critical. And it's something I've, I've said on the show a lot, and I want to say it one more time. When we're interpreting data, especially large quantities of data, we have to remain humble. This week, we discovered, thanks to certain states announcing they were changing things up, which otherwise this would have remained undiscovered, that the Center for Disease Control, so the CDC, is conflating the results of two different types of 
coronavirus tests. They're distorting several important metrics and providing the country with an inaccurate picture of the state of the pandemic, which is leading our governors and our mayors and the president to have to make decisions based off of faulty data. Now, this week in virology, episode 617 goes into this in a lot more depth. They have about an eight-minute segment on this alone. I'll play just a bit of that so you can get a taste, but I have linked to the entire episode in the show notes. And I have to add to that, this show, uh, TWIV, T-W-I-V, is a Discord favorite. The folks in uh, the Unfiltered Discord think this show is full of good information. I've started to recently listen, and I agree. So here's a little bit of them explaining why the CDC combining and distorting test results is bad. I have now a question for Rich Condit. I just got this article uh, because the author, Madeline Meckelberg, I've talked to her a few times, and this is about Texas will stop combining coronavirus antibody and test data, antibody and PCR data. Why did they do that in the first place, Rich? Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm uh, not in a frequent contact with the governor yeah. or the Texas health officials, so I can't give an authoritative answer to that question. However... Um, I can tell you, I pasted uh, in response to that a link to uh, an article in The Atlantic, uh-huh. Dateline mm-hmm. Yesterday, yep. uh, that is titled, How Could the CDC Make That Mistake? <laughs> this practice of combining the tests from uh, the antibody test, the serology test, and the PCR test for active virus is much more widespread than just Texas. That doesn't ex- doesn't excuse Texas. Uh, uh, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, apparently, apparently, I would like to, you know, I'd like to look into this. Well, we're going to hear a lot more about this. But um, the lead in sentence to this is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is conflating the results of two different uh, types of coronavirus tests, distorting several important metrics and providing the country with an inaccurate picture of the state of the pandemic. And I just want to point uh, later out on in the same that, that is a beautifully crafted sentence because the part after the comma answers the question of why are they doing the part before the comma? And uh, uh, the paragraph ends with that the agency confirmed to the Atlantic on Wednesday that it is mixing the results of viral and antibody tests, even though the two tests reveal different information. It goes on later on to say several states, including Pennsylvania, Texas, Georgia, and Vermont, are blending data in the same way. Virginia as well. Maine uh, has recently separated uh, its data. It was combining them before, blah, blah, blah. So this is not I mean, this is a, has been a fairly widespread practice. As you get into this article, it becomes a little more confusing as to what the history of data reporting at CDC has been and how they're dealing with it now. But I have to say that uh, uh, it's disturbing. And these are credentialed individuals. And I want to thank uh, the Discord for, uh, for linking that up because um, – I try to be a meta collector of information from all sources, including if there's well-credentialed podcast sources, I'd like to get them in the show as well. So I I appreciate you guys linking that. And they do get in that discussion. There's a lot more, including potential political motivations for it. They touch on that slightly. But they they do also talk about why you can't combine these two tests. You can't combine the antibody and the currently infected test where they stick it up the nose. Correct. Um, so, So the issue here is the test's as we've discussed in the past, measure different things. Uh, the PCR test measures whether you is a, actually it's a proxy. It's looking for genome RNA, not active virus, but nevertheless, it's the best proxy we have for whether or not you have an ongoing virus infection. The serology test tests whether you were ever 
uh, infected in the past. So they, those are very different things uh, that uh, are have very different uses. And if you combine those data and say and and basically equate the that serology positive is the same as PCR positive, you know, I think basically you lose the meaning of yes. either test. Yeah, Correct. you do. And then you combine that with every desk or desk with every death getting counted as a corona related death even if it's maybe primarily heart disease with a side of corona and you start to wonder what you can trust about these numbers and how valid this data is at all and that's more important than ever when we're trying to take on not only the decisions like reopening the economy and how many people can be in a restaurant but at the same time, we're dramatically ramping up our testing capabilities. So more testing is being done. Ergo, we're going to find more positive cases and the antibody tests are becoming more readily available. So we will have more antibody tests. And it, it's just all mixed up altogether. And it doesn't give us really good data. We need individual streams of this information. How hard can that be? So I definitely would uh, recommend this week in biology episode 160, or I'm sorry, episode 617, a um, couple episodes ago as uh, we record this. Moving on to uh, Governor Kuman in New York. I, I love this because he's gotten slammed for how he handled retirement homes. I'm trying to think about how how much I want to get into this. This is why I'm pausing. I'm like, do I really want to get into this whole story? And I don't. It's a whole other episode, whole other set of clips. Um, but since since recent accusations, he's sort of been on the defensive. And I thought this clip really kind of illustrated that. But also, what I love about it is, ain't nobody caring that he at all that he called it the European virus. He goes, he continues to call it the European virus. Oh, it's so racist. Oh, it's so racist. No. Nobody. Nobody says that. Um, I just think that's pretty great. Uh, so I, I want to play this because he says, and I just, he's, the way he presents it, the whole thing, it's just so classic Kuman. Stop abusing New York. Stop abusing New Jersey. Stop abusing Massachusetts and Illinois and Michigan and Pennsylvania. Stop abusing the states who bore the brunt of the COVID virus. Through no fault of their own. Of course not. Why did New York have so many cases? It's nothing about New York. It's because the virus came from Europe and... There we go. Here we go. Now, of course, it's nothing to do with him. It's nothing to do with him. fault of their own. Why did New York have so many cases? Not me. Not me. It's nothing about New York. No. It's because the virus came from Europe and no one in this nation told us. We were told the virus is coming from China. It's coming from China. Look to the West. Yeah. Well, they missed it. We were looking to the West. It came from the East. The virus left China, went to Europe. Three million Europeans come to New York, land in our airports, January, February, March, and bring the virus. And nobody knew. It was not New York's job. We don't do international global health. Fuck the EU. It didn't come from China. It came from Europe. And we bore the brunt of it. And now you want to hold that against us? Because we bore the brunt? 
<laughs> I just, how classic is this? And he has next to him a big slide that says, message to Washington, stop abusing. And then he lists the states there. Top COVID states. <laughs> oh, stop it, he says. Stop abusing us, he says. How about that? Isn't that something? Oh, well, you know what that horn means. It's time for a little showception. I just have a couple of things I should probably talk about. Number one, I'd love to get some additional clips submitted into the show. Unfiltered.show slash Discord. In there is a clips channel. And I was kind of thinking about in the near future, I'd love to do like a I react to your clips. I don't know if it's like a live stream thing or maybe a segment in the show, but you guys submit in some clips and then I collect them up and I play them and give you my hot take on them. So instead of me finding the clips and coming in with thoughts ahead of time, I play a few of your clips. Um, and the other reason why that could be kind of great is coming up very soon, I am heading to Austin. I have family work and I have some work down there, um, some client work for the podcast consulting, which has kind of been going a little bit more. And I'm taking the entire family, packing up all three kids, the wife and the dog, in Lady Jupes, and heading down to Austin. First, I got to get uh, some electrical things tweaked in Oregon, and then I'm heading down. I think based on, like, if I stop and work, it's going to take me about nine days to get down there. So, I'll probably have spotty connectivity while I'm, at, while I'm like, in passes and things like that. So, maybe that might be a good opportunity to do a kind of a segment like that. So, this, that also means the schedule will be a little fluid, as they say. It'll be a little floaty. <laughs> um, so, just subscribe at unfilter.show slash subscribe, because then you'll just get the episode when I release it. I will work on one, though, while I'm on the road. Um, and also, speaking of um, recent stuff that uh, came up, we just did a live stream last Friday, twitch.tv slash unfilter. Angela stopped by, and we did the Q&A. It was a lot of fun. That is archived up at twitch.tv slash unfilter. I don't know how long <laughs> Twitch keeps that. So if, you, if you're interested, go watch it. Uh, and then um, also, uh, just a follow-up to yesterday, or last week's, yesterday's episode, uh, the China Cold War, more has gone down there, um, including the United States has said it is prepared to spend, outspend, and spend Russia and China into oblivion on a new nuclear arms race. So that's really good. Link in the show notes about that. If you thought that episode was informational, I wanted to, I wanted to mention that because that would have been a big story that would have played into that episode, but it came out obviously after the show was produced. Unfilter is also now fully active, fully activated and sustained by our patrons at patreon.com slash unfilter. hey Thank you to everyone who is supporting us over there. We have different levels. And um, I think we have a couple of uh, slots open in the executive spot. That's at patreon.com slash unfilter. And your support keeps us going. So with that, we restart the show. Stand by. Getting all things going. Queuing up the next clips as we transition into the economy segment. Uh, here we are. It's all about the vaccines and the good news, the bad news, the hope. It's all about vaccines with lots of announcements, including from the biggie, Merck. Optimism on reopening and hopes of a coming vaccine help push the major averages higher. Meg Terrell joins us now as Merck becomes the latest company to pivot its efforts to the virus response. Big news here, Meg. 
That's right, Sarah. I mean, a company with a more proven track record in vaccines is hard to find. Uh, Merck announcing three deals today in the COVID-19 space. One of them is to develop an antiviral drug that they're in licensing from Ridgeback Bio. This is a small molecule or a pill uh, that is currently in phase one. A company saying it's been shown to be well tolerated and they're going to take it through clinical development, but it would be similar to remdesivir, uh, except that it could be taken as a pill as opposed to an IV. And so-, so they got multiple types of products that are getting worked on. Multiple, so multiple companies are getting in the vaccine game because it's not a one winner takes all like it's been talked about. In fact, there's multiple types of ways to apply the medication. There's people who are taking it preventatively, types of vaccines. There's people who already have it that need to get cured. There's all these different types of medicine that have to be made around that. Johnson & Johnson announced they're getting in. Um, there's, I think it's pronounced Novavax, also announced that they're producing, but they're targeting the Australian market because it seems like they already have an in there so they can get to market faster, which is a big part of all of this as well. Stan, Thanks for being with us this morning. You know, starting with the news today that you've begun your phase one trial of your COVID-19 vaccine in Australia. Tell us why Australia? Well, we've done it there before. We have a history of making vaccines for emerging infectious diseases where it's really important. Timing is really important to get started and then to follow through. And and so we've, we've done this with a pandemic influenza strain and Ebola and actually with another two coronaviruses. So this is our third coronavirus vaccine and it just works. And so what we do is we we start early in, in Australia. They have a very good uh, setup for phase one trials. And then we, we go directly into phase two trial in the US and Australia following up on that. So, so their stock is up 15% on the news. A lot of the big companies are announcing they're getting in. However, The market wants something really soon because it is tied to consumer confidence. Vaccine equals consumer confidence. It it equals easy button for reopening the schools. Vaccine means it's easy for businesses to go back to normal with a low risk of liability and a high potential for consumer confidence. It's really important in that regard. Also, there's the whole health thing. But the bad news is, and I'm sorry to say the unfortunate thing about a COVID vaccine is it's not going to be six to nine months. Here's the Stanford Medical School dean saying it's pretty unlikely. I think six to nine months is a very, very short time frame, maybe too optimistic. And also, we have to temper the optimism with the realism that a lot of work has to be done from getting from the laboratory to a phase one study to ultimately a large clinical trial and proof of efficacy. Yeah. And when the Merck CEO came on, he said essentially the same thing as well. It's just not likely nine, 11 months. He says 18 months for something that is a take once and you're set is more is very, very optimistic at 18 months, 18 months from now. That's a long time. So there's and there will be different versions of this. You'll see multiple companies and every time they announce something, their stock prices shoot way up. But it's going to be a big part of the economy reopening and it's going to be a big part of stock market optimism is when these companies have these optimistic news announcements. The stock market seems to react very positively. Oh, things are going to be normal again. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And then the stocks go up. We'll see. 
But uh, if you're hearing six to nine months, uh, I have regrettably to inform you it ain't going to happen. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it is getting hyped up quite a bit on the media right now. Oh, something might be just nine months out or something like that. Here in time for the holidays. <laughs> Get shot up for the holidays, friends. Um, I'm, I'm unfortunately have to be the bearer of bad news. It ain't going to happen. Also, what ain't going to happen is uh, getting Feinstein busted for that insider trading. We will walk away, I think, with some uh, skin, but uh, not from most of the folks involved. Sarah, the Wall Street Journal is reporting, according to its sources, that the Department of Justice is going to be closing the investigations of uh, trading in the portfolios of Senators Inhofe, Feinstein and Leffler. Uh, All of those lawmakers had access to information about the coronavirus as that concern was ramping up and just before the market sell off. Notably, the department is not expected to close the investigation into trading by Senator Richard Burr, who had more direct involvement in a near liquidation of his portfolio. Senator Burr has said that he was relying on public information reported by CNBC Asia. But according to The Wall Street Journal, the investigation into Burr's trading activity will continue while the investigation into trading on behalf of those other lawmakers, either by their spouses or their investment advisors, is going to be closed. Boo! Although, come on. I told you that was... I totally called this. And that's why Burr had to step down. It wasn't because he's a distraction. It's because he he knew. He's got the inside scoop. He knew what was coming. (laughs) Now, Rubio, by the way, Rubio is sitting in Burr's place on the Intelligence Committee. He's the stand-in head guy now. Marco. Yeah. Marco Rubio. You know, I think the thing that's not getting enough coverage, the obvious concern, the real problem with the lockdowns, it's the rats. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says stay-at-home orders could lead to an increase in rats. The agency is also warning about, quote, aggressive rodent behavior across the country. Restaurant closures have caused a decrease in rats' food supplies. Many of the animals are now turning to residential buildings and homes in search of new food sources. Don't say... I, I keep you, don't say I don't keep you informed, right? I mean, that's valuable information that you only get here. Well, I guess you could get it on CBS Digital, but nobody watches that. Okay, let's talk about the election. You guys, oh, if you'll allow me. Excuse me. Okay, now we got to talk about Joe Biden. So I'm sure by now everyone has heard the you ain't black moment. You ain't black. Yeah, everybody played it. It's gotten a ton of coverage. I knew by the time this show would come around, everybody would have heard that clip. So I want to maybe just add some context to what happened, give you some backstory on why Joe Biden was on this breakfast show. The the backstory on this whole conversation actually goes back uh, quite a ways into the primary in which just about every Democratic presidential hopeful appeared on this uh, popular show, The Breakfast Club, except for Joe Biden. And what was so interesting about that, of course, is that the, the black vote, the, the African-American vote was so critical for Joe Biden. It's really the reason he is now the apparent yeah. nominee. And so the, the show had been very critical of him been pressuring him to still appear on the show. And finally, they managed to get that together. And during what was really a 20 minute conversation, there was some tense back and forth, really pressing uh, Joe Biden about some of his past policies. 
policy positions like uh, the crime bill, 1994 crime bill, of course, like on drug legalization, marijuana legalization specifically. But even with the you know tough back and forth, it was that moment at the end there that was what really got Biden in trouble. Let's talk about some of the context before we get to that moment at the end. Um, first of all, I, I saw this happen sort of in real time as soon as all the clips started to come available. And I flipped on the the different television stations and watched the real-time rationalization for why Joe would say something like this. But the this call was even more interesting than what, than what you probably have heard. If you back up a few moments in the call, Joe was getting feisty, and the Zoom lag was hitting them, and uh, it, Joe was kind of like shouting a little bit. It was It was kind of a fiery call. A lot of black voters, including myself, feel, and that's that Democrats take black voters for granted. I want a larger share of the black vote than anybody has, including Barack. They're the folks, as they say it my way, brung me to the dance. That's how I get elected. We had Hillary on a few years ago, uh, and Ms. Clinton said that the crime bill, made, we made a lot of mistakes with that, and she wanted to atone for that by becoming the next president. Like She was wrong. What happened was it wasn't the crime bill. It was the drug legislation. Thank you so much. That's really our time. I apologize. So that's Joe's handler. Uh, they interrupt to try to get Joe off because obviously he's going off the rails here. That crime bill was something obviously that Joe co-signed on and um, has been looked at as very negative for the African-American community. And Joe is very sensitive about this. And I think that bringing that up, really kind of threw him off his game a little bit. And you can kind of hear in this interview, he's, he's trying to be high energy. He's trying to be hip. He even has a little slang he's thrown in there earlier that I also think probably would have got him called out if the other thing hadn't. But I, I just take in the tone of this interview. It's, it's already a bit fiery before we've even gotten to the end. Wrong. What happened was it wasn't the crime bill. It was the drug legislation. Thank you so much. That's really our time. I apologize. You can't do that to the black media. I do that to white media and black media because my wife has to go on at six o'clock. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I will. Now, I mean, maybe just call it the media, not white and black media. But that wasn't that wasn't the very end. Right before they disconnect is is when he slipped up. And I think it makes it makes sense to hear the entire thing. You got more questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. I would love to see. Take you a look at my record, man. I extended the voting racks 25 years. This is where he always he always goes here. They take a look at my record, man. That's always the Joe go-to line. He gets fired up. And even in there, he says, you know, he calls it the uh, the voting rights racked or something. I can't remember what he hope. I'll play. You know, let's just play it back. My community. I would love to see. Take you a look at my record, man. I extended the voting racks 25 years. The voting racked is what he says. Community. I would love to see. Take you a look at my record, man. I extended the voting racks 25 years. I have a record that is second to none. The NAACP has endorsed me every time I've run. The world. I mean, come on. Take a look at the record. I think he was going to throw the world horse. World horse. There you go. I think he was going to throw the WHO in there, but then he decided not to at the end. Uh, I, I think that exchange kind of gives you kind of the the flavor of what that interview was like. And obviously it doesn't expose or doesn't it doesn't it doesn't mean what he said was right. You ain't black. I, I think he was trying to be hip. I think he blew it. That's my honest opinion. 
I, I think he kind of knew what he was saying at the time, but it was a calculated risk trying to, you know, really kind of put it out there. And then he kind of later came out with a really crappy, sorry, not sorry, not apology. The last thing I want to do, and I shouldn't have been such a wise guy. I shouldn't have been so cavalier in responding to what I thought was anyway. That's not an apology. I shouldn't have been so cavalier. I shouldn't have been a wise guy anyway. I shouldn't have been so cavalier in responding to what I thought was anyway. So he cuts himself off. It, It was, I don't take it for granted at all. And no one, no one should have to vote for any party based on their race, their religion, their background. They're African-Americans who think that Trump is worth voting for. I don't think so. I'm prepared to put my record against his. That was the bottom line. And it was uh, it was really unfortunate. I shouldn't have been so cavalier. So he didn't apologize at all. There's no apology in there at all. Another moment in the interview that I thought was interesting is Joe says the science is still out on weed. You know, Vice President Biden, I've read some of your black agenda and you say that you would decriminalize marijuana. What's the difference between legalizing it and decriminalizing it? Because they're trying to find out whether or not there is any impact on the use of marijuana, not in leading you to other drugs, but what it affects, does it affect long-term development of the brain? And we should wait till the studies are done. I think science matters. I think we got decades. I think we got decades and decades of studies from actual weed smokers, though. Yeah, I do. I know a lot of weed smokers. <laughs> I do like that last part a little bit. Um, so, not not a bad defense. I believe in the science. Problem is, science tells us that drinking has all kinds of damaging effects to the body's organs, and also can affect development of the brain. It's just, you know, it's such a bullshit politician answer. I'm sick of it. So let's talk about something a little more. Let's talk about something a little more juicy. Let's talk about some leaked audio. Oh, did you hear? Did you hear about the leaked audio? These are recordings that contain what appear to be heavily edited conversations between Biden and the former Ukrainian president, the new puppet that was put in after Victoria Nuland and her friends went over there and got the new government installed. This is all during the Crimea stuff and the firing of their equivalency of the United States' attorney general. After that attorney general, I'm just calling it that shorthand. They have, a, they have a different name for it. After that attorney general was fired, the Biden plan was to release a billion dollars in funding and help them secure money from the IMF. So a billion from the U.S. and funding from the IMF. As long as they fired that prosecutor who was looking into corruptions around Joe's son. Now, you've heard this story before. It's one of these old constant. It's like it's it's like one of these iterative Benghazi type things that the right sinks their teeth into and the left shrugs off. And there's nothing to it. The left says and the right says it clearly shows that Biden was holding that billion dollars over Ukraine. And that's worse than anything Trump did. Well, I'll play the audio of their phone call, and I'll let you be the judge, because this is pretty juicy leaked audio. Hey, Mr. President, Joe Biden, how are you? Very well indeed, as usual when I hear your voice. Thank you very much. Well, you are doing very well. Congratulations on on getting the new prosecutor general. I know there's a lot more that has to be done, but I really really think that's that's good, uh, and I understand your... 
working with the ROD in the coming days on a number of additional laws to secure the IMF. So, but congratulations on installing the new prosecutor general. So Joe congratulates him on firing the old attorney general or prosecutor, prosecutor general, as they call it, congratulates him on getting the new guy. I also, by the way, have linked the full audio, which is great because he goes into how much freaking work it was to fire that guy. The uh, Ukrainian president does. And so that's all like just right up front. Hey, thanks. Great job. Really glad you got that guy fired. He was so awful, right? Looking into my son. He doesn't say that part. It's going to be critical uh, for him to work quickly to repair the damage Chokin did. And I'm a man of my word. I uh, And that now that the new prosecutor general's in place, we're ready to move forward in signing that new $1 billion loan guarantee. He says it right there. He just says it right there at the end. He just says, yeah, now that you fired that guy, I'm going to go ahead and just uh, start the paperwork. And in fact, then later they discuss like, hey, how do you want to get that money? I, uh, and that now that the new prosecutor general's in place, we're ready to move forward in signing that new $1 billion loan guarantee. Can you believe this? Just right there on the call. And, and that's just one of many calls they had. Now, how does audio like that get out there between the vice president of the United States and the Ukrainian president? Well, but if I were to go by just the audio acoustics, to me, it sounds like it was recorded on the Ukrainian side with Biden on speakerphone, Biden holding his phone up to his face. He was on speakerphone in the Ukrainian office and they recorded it probably on another phone there. If I were going by the acoustics. Hey, Mr. President, Joe Biden, how are you? Very well, indeed. As usual, when I hear your voice, you see what I'm saying. And the audio was released recently by an office that is associated with Rudy Giuliani. (laughs) Yeah, I have details in the show notes, as I do, but I just can't. (laughs) So it's really all related to the election. It's from Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal attorney. That's who put this out there. They just want to get him so bad. They just want to get Joe so bad. And um, they may have their way. It is possible that this may lead to something because this audio getting out there is a serious deal. In fact, there's going to be an investigation on the Ukrainian side. At least that's what they say. But there may also be an investigation on the U.S. side in the Senate. Okay, the Senate Homeland Security Committee moving forward now with its investigation of Joe Biden's son, Hunter, despite objections from Democrats. Yeah, not much yet to that, but I'll keep an eye on to see if that goes anywhere. There's also been some really great audio of Devin Nunes saying that they have to harvest votes if the right has any shot to win. I'll play it. But now, even though we don't like it, we don't want to, but we are forced to have to ballot harvest because it's the only way to win. So as long as we have a robust ballot harvesting operation come November, and I hate saying that because it's illegal in 49 states, uh, I think Mark, Mark, Mike Garcia is in a good shape to hold on to that seat because it's traditionally a Republican seat. What? What is he saying here? What is this ballot harvesting, also known as vote harvesting, and that it's the only way the Republican will keep a seat in California? Well, ballot harvesting is the act of collecting and submitting absentee or mail-in voter ballots by paid workers. They go around and they collect undelivered ballots. They collect your ballot. Even if it's empty, they'll pay you for it in some cases too. And they'll fill it out. It occurs in some areas of the United States where voting by mail is common. 
but it is illegal in other states. The practice has been credited with changing the outcomes of certain elections, which is documented in a Wikipedia page, which I'll link to in the show notes. Ballot harvesting. That's part of what this vote by mail is all about. And now Nunes is saying the Republicans are going to use this technique to keep their seats. Now that, out of context, sounds horrible. But here is Nunes back in 2019 arguing against ballot harvesting and saying it would lead Republicans to having to be forced to do the same. I take you back to 2019. The legislature uh, made it now legal to where I can go and knock on your door and get your ballot from you. So they're, they're mandating that everybody goes to the DMV, get a ballot. Uh, they are mailing ballots out. So you have ballots floating around all over California. Uh, and as you know, many people move, many people uh, you know, move during the year, they don't re-register. So you've got ballots floating around everywhere. Now, what the left is trying to do and the Democrats are trying to do, they're trying to run the Republican Party to extinction. And so far, at least, they seem to be doing a good job of it, if recent election results are any indication. Before the November elections, the GOP held 14 seats in the California delegation. Now they hold seven, which is the smallest share controlled by the GOP since 1883. So now the question is, I think the Republican Party was reluctant to, to do any of it. But now you're going to have to see the Republican Party actually begin to vote harvest themselves in California in order to compete. And that's going to be a real challenge, uh, I think, because it's just not good for democracy. It's not good for democracy to have paid people going door to door collecting ballots. It just encourages fraud. But if one party does it, the Republican Party has no choice but to go door to door and gather ballots. Yeah, democracy, baby. Woohoo. That's the U.S. for you. Yeah, doesn't it feel good to be part of this republic? And now here we are in 2020, and that's exactly what they're doing. And you'll probably hear that clip played out of context a whole lot. That's the background. And uh, the, Re the Republican Party, on the whole, is trying to shut this down. Uh, but while it's still available, they're going to take advantage of it. It's a weird, weird democracy. Let's just put it that way. And the Patriot Act has made it even weirder. This is We're going to come back to Nunes because this is something he follows. But let's start with, unfortunately, a clip from RT. <laughs> Not only do they have horrible audio, but they generally have bad presentation. Oh, and that whole Russia thing. But guess what? Not a lot of U.S. news is covering this little thing that expires, just this little teeny tiny detail that enables the FBI or the intelligence agencies to look at your browser history and your web history without a warrant. And that had to be automatically like the like a monkey pressing a button. You have to press a button every so often or they just automatically get those powers. All right. Listen up here. Turns out the FBI is not going to need a warrant to look at your internet browsing history. The U.S. Senate failed to pass an amendment to a package of surveillance laws that would have prevented the FBI from searching through your internet browsing and search history data without a warrant. Now, this package of changes, like so many things, became partisan because in that reform package, also included the releasing of transcripts and information about the digging into the Trump campaign that happened around around the whole Russiagate issue. 
And so it became a right-left issue. And so by not acting, by failing to vote, these powers automatically come into effect. So by not taking action, the powers are, in a sense, permitted. You have to take action to deny them. So it's, it's hard to follow in that sense. But this is what's happened. So joining us now to discuss, Boombus co-host and investigative journalist Ben Swan. Uh, so Ben, uh, this all just barely passed the U.S. Senate. Yeah. How close of a vote are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about about as close as you can get, Manila. We're talking about one vote. That's how short uh, these amendments came from being passed. And the, the frustrating thing about it, if you are a privacy advocate, as I am, if you're someone who believes in, in civil liberties, um, it's pretty disappointing when you had three different senators who didn't show up, including uh, Bernie Sanders, a senator from Vermont, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass, and then Patty Murray. Patty Murray had said that she would have voted for these amendments had she been there, but she wasn't there. Yeah, let's dig into this. What What is going on and what are the key issues that are facing this debate around these FISA law changes? We go back to Devin. Uh, the, the key here is, is that we had a compromise between Republicans and Democrats that went to the Senate. It was dramatically changed. At that point, it was really unworkable, I think, for law enforcement. It came back over here to the House of Representatives, where you have to remember, the Democrats, for the most part, aren't here. Like, a third of them are not even here because mm -hmm. they're, they're going to institute this proxy voting. So we can't even debate. And that's the whole reason to have a legislative branch of government is to debate these issues. Sure. And if we can't debate something as important as, as you know, spying on American citizens and spying on political campaigns, it really looks like the Democrats right. don't want to be here because of the political problems that they know because their party was directly involved in the, in the scandal. He's been painted as a Trump ally from early on, but I look at what Devin's work has primarily been about is around curbing abuse of these surveillance laws. Early on when he took that trip to the White House, it was about abuse of these surveillance laws. And that's always kind of been the key driver of what he's been talking about. I think he gets dismissed on this topic so quickly because people say, oh, oh he's, just a, he's just a Trump supporter. He's a diehard Trump supporter. And then that just means discard everything he says. But I think it's important to hear him on this next part. He says the hype that you're going to hear primarily by the Justice Department and the FBI, that the government has to have all of these powers to fight terrorists, is simply not true. The Attorney General, William Barr, as John Roberts pointed out, has previously said he needs these powers to go after foreign terrorists. So are you willing to make this point about what went wrong in 2016 and hold the Attorney General back from having powers he says he needs to fight terrorists? Well, let's try to quickly unpack this. So remember, there's only one specific part of FISA. That's the records component, what was originally called 215. That's the only thing that's up for reauthorization. That's actually gone dark. Larger FISA that allows us to target terrorists, et cetera, et cetera, that's still in operation, and that's in permanent law. That does not expire. And that's, that was the agreement that we made with the Attorney General a couple months ago, uh, was to come to an agreement of something that would actually go back and rewrite that law so that we would have access to uh, the Woods file and all the things that were done uh, in this conspiracy by dirty cops in the Clinton campaign and, and likely people within the Obama administration. So that's made it inherently political. But I do think we need to review how these powers have been abused because they are so powerful. They could be so easily used for political blackmail or political targeting. It seems to be that the Steele dossier was pretty clearly bogus. 
um, it's pretty pretty clear at this point. So why was it used, even when that was known? That kind of stuff has to be figured out. So this FISA Act and these changes and and all of this that are happening, I would like to keep a close eye on this. So if you see any interesting audio or clips, please put them in the Discord, unfiltered.show slash Discord in the clip section, or we also have a news and a privacy section. I'll leave it up to your best judgment. And then tag me if it's a great clip that you think should make it on the show, because while I'm traveling, it'll be a little bit harder to spot some of that stuff. But I'd like to start collecting that as much as we can. Maybe I can uh, use the power of the community a little bit there to increase the dragnet on that particular topic. And I'll tune my filters as well for the unfiltered show. (laughs) And we'll see if we can't get more info, because I think that's extremely important. And we end with the ever-punchable Rand Paul, who makes some fantastic points about the Patriot Act. I can't disagree with him on this. The Patriot Act was begotten of the most unpatriotic of ideas, that liberty can be exchanged for security. The history of the Patriot Act shows that the exchange is a poor one. As our liberty wanes and wastes away, we find that the promises of security were an illusion. Now, this is on the floor of the Senate during the FISA reauthorization debate where there were not enough votes. But this was the case he tried to make to a mostly empty floor. The history of the Patriot Act is really a history of how power corrupts and how bias and malfeasance grow when power is unchecked. The Patriot Act allows a secret court, FISA, to grant generalized warrants to collect personal data from millions of Americans. The spies who run these surveillance programs then lied for years and years to us. One of the most notorious of these liars was James Clapper. When cross-examined under oath by Senator Wyden, James Clapper denied that the government was collecting data on millions of Americans. A month later, The whistleblower, Edward Snowden, revealed that Clapper had lied. Snowden revealed that Clapper and others were using the Patriot Act to spy on virtually every American. Couldn't have said it better myself. Keep this show. It's a people's history. Keep it going. Patreon.com slash unfilter. We're documenting these things as they develop from the people's perspective. No biases, just something oriented for the community, powered by the community at patreon.com slash unfilter. Don't forget to submit your clips to Discord. The email is up and rocking at Patreon. <laughs> Robot mode. No. Unfilter at protonmail.com or just go to the contact page. That's probably easiest. While you're there, you can get the subscribe. All of the show notes for episode 311. Links are all there too. It's really probably just easier to say go to unfilter.show. <laughs> you know, I just go into the mode. I can't help myself. Can't help myself. It's automatic. Thank you to those who have signed up at the patron. Do really appreciate it. I think I'm going to I think I'm going to go with patrons for those of you who are patrons and Patreon for how I refer to the platform in general. I think that'll be the verbiage going forward. That's episode 311. The next one will be on the road to Austin with an RV full of kids. <laughs> oh, what am I doing? Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of The Unfiltered Show. And I have a lot of confidence. I'm going to make it happen. I'll see you next week.
some faith healers. <laughs> Mommy needs a joint. <laughs>